Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello, and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. If you are one of the people that work to build grassroots advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you are in the right place. Hey, we're proud to welcome Rap Index as a sponsor to the show. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to RAP Index. Now that's R-A-P-Index.com. Tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. Now let's get started. In today's episode, we meet Robin Troutman. Robin is the Deputy Director at the National Association of Councils on Developmental Disabilities, known as NACDD, where she specializes in organizational management, events management, member engagement, and advocacy. Robin has over 15 years experience in the nonprofit sector. She received her bachelor's from Binghamton University and her Master's of Management from the University of Central Florida. Robin, thank you and welcome to today's show. Thank you so much, Roger, for having me. Oh, it's so great to see you again. And it's been a while, voice. but it's good to see you. Yes. Uh, wish, wish it could be live and wish, wish it could be face-to-face. That we do. But we will get to that day again, won't we? Well, I hope soon. <laughs> it, looks yeah. like, it looks like we're trending, we're trending the right way now. It sure does. So as we begin, can you explain for the listeners what the National Association of Councils on Developmental Disabilities is and what you do? Sure. So the National Association, um, NACDD, is the national uh, office for the 56 state and territory developmental disabilities councils. So we have a council in every state plus Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., the Virgin Islands, um, American Samoa, Guam, and the Northern Mariana Islands, so our territories. Um, and these councils are federally mandated and federally funded by the U.S. federal government, and they um, work to ensure that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, are able to live and work and play and be educated in the community of their choice, rather than be forced into congregate settings or institutions or um, group homes or 
you know, anything that they um, don't want to do, but to be fully inclusive into their communities. So each DD council is made up of 60% of their members are people with intellectual or developmental disabilities or their family member. Um, and other members of the community. And so NACDD, the national office, um, works to provide education, advocacy efforts. Um, and of course, because the councils are federally funded, we are able to lobby uh, to the federal government on their behalf. So, and you represent the full spectrum, don't you, of disabilities? Or primarily? We, we, yes and no. We, we okay. focus um, on intellectual um, and developmental. So what we are, what those are, are people that have been diagnosed from either the age of onset of uh, as, as birth uh, up to age 23. So it wouldn't be okay. uh, a person who maybe unfortunately uh, was in a ski accident or a car accident right. and is now unable to walk freely. Um, but so we would, you know, we do work with groups that support those people, but we really focus on those uh, individuals who maybe have Down syndrome or cerebral palsy, uh, autism, uh, some learning disabilities, um, you know, the, and things that um, are developed mostly at birth uh, through the age of 23. Great. That was a good distinction. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So what are some of the key issues? You said that you could advocate uh, at federal level. So what are the key issues and priorities that confront the people with developmental disabilities, their families, uh, and, and what do you do on their behalf? Sure, so I, I'm, as I'm sure a lot of people know, there is a lot of stigma still around um, what a person with an intellectual or developmental disability can or will do. And you know, just like with everything, it's, it is individual based. So there shouldn't be any barriers for an individual to be able to go to school um, and be in a classroom with his or her peers. Um, there's no reason anymore why that student should be put into a separate room um, and, and, and be dealt with separately. They, they are, they're a student, they're of age, they should be able to go to elementary school, middle school, high school, and get an actual diploma and not just a certificate of completion if they have the proper supports. In addition, um, there are plenty of people in, that are older with intellectual or developmental disabilities that want to want a job and they want um, an inclusive job and not just, you know, filling, you know, stuffing envelopes. Um, and they want to be paid at least minimum wage. There are still many places and states that allow for sub-minimum wage. And we, as the national office, are working very closely to, re uh, to remove the federal allowance for sub-minimum wage, which, you know, there are some people that get paid 30 cents to the dollar as opposed that's, to- That's shameful. It's shameful. It is. I mean, and they are working just as hard as anyone else. So at least get give them, you know, I know there's a whole debate on what minimum wage should be, but at least we should all be on the same page that everyone should be paid at least minimum wage. Yeah. And we need to do away with sub minimum wage. Um, but, you know, major organizations and companies corporations, they need to hire people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. There's 
Um, it's better for the person. It's better for the organization. It's better for the coworkers to to um, help reduce that stigma around around uh, people wh who may be on the autism spectrum or have Down syndrome. There's no reason why people should just assume that they can't work um, when there is more than enough evidence to show that they absolutely can. And then they should be able to live. Um, in, in, in their own home if, if they want to with the proper supports and are able to. And there shouldn't be um, segregated communities of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we work with um, our partners, with a number of coalitions to, to, to tell states and the federal government that, um, you know, community living is best and every, but it is also individualized just because it works for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for every person, but as long as they have that option, that's what we promote is the ability for that option. You know, uh, it, it might be a good time for me to share that I had the wonderful opportunity uh, presented to me to go ahead and keynote at your national conference uh, on right before advocacy. a hurricane too. <laughs> um, boy, was that a crazy, a crazy day in the room. That was a crazy day. Uh, but uh, the wonderful thing, the thing, I, the reason why I wanted to point that out was the warmth from your members. Uh, it was, it was just a glowing, wonderful experience for me to be around them, to, to chat with them, to ex share experiences with them. Uh, and they share their experiences with me. Uh, th these are just wonderful human beings. And uh, I, th I think that they need to be included much more so into the community than some places hinder them from their ability to do that. Uh, yeah. So do you, do you solicit input then from your 56 member councils regarding these priorities or do they we help do we do you know um the councils were formed with the idea of community living um when the developmental disabilities bill of rights and assistance acts was first implemented it was on that um that founding principle that people should be living in the community mostly to um deinstitutionalize we didn't want these large institutions which were well known to have a number of issues. And so we wanted to move people away from that and into the community. So yes, the DD councils uh, throughout the country um, really do promote the importance of community living. And so we work with them very closely as well as other um, disability organizations to collect information, what's happening in the state, what are people experiencing? Like you said, it's the best way to, to promote and advocate is to learn from the people that are living the experience. And so we, we ensure that we're, you know, whether it's for an annual conference or it's a blog post or, um, you know, just to have a conversation or our CEO is going to Congress to, to meet with them about the importance of the DD councils, you know, hearing those stories and, and uh, receiving information from the councils themselves um, are really what makes our, uh, our organization really unique and um, uh, kind of, uh, in my opinion, um, just different because we have that ability to to hear from people with lived experience directly. That's right. You uh, you know you have the wonderful ability for them to tell their story, and and they do it in, in a an absolutely wonderful way. Uh, are are all of the councils? I don't know the answer to this. Are all the councils 
part of government. I know in dealing with some of the states that I've dealt with, it's usually through the governor's office. Yeah, so exist. yeah, so they. I'd say all but one are pretty much in fully embedded into state government. There is one that is a nonprofit, um, so it it does kind of work on its own. But all of the members of the DD councils are appointed by the governor in each state and territory. So, you know, a lot of the DD councils will solicit for applications for people to, and then they then present those to the governor's appointments office, and then they get appointed by the governor. Each state and territory has its own terms and how that actually goes. And each governor moves a little bit faster than the other, but it is pretty much the same process where they, you know, make recommendations to the governor. And then, um, yes, they are embedded within the state, which does, cause its own, you know, concerns because state government versus it is very, yes, uniqueness is is probably the more diplomatic word because, you know, they are federally funded, but they sit within state government. So there is a lot of, um, a a lot of rules um, and, and, and maneuvering that needs to be done. But um, some might call that red tape, huh? Well, we, we, yes, we can, we could, we could call it that. <laughs> Bureaucracy, I guess, is another word. Government <laughs> in action. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. So here's a question I ask all of my guests. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of advocacy? I think of stories. I think storytelling. Interesting. I think it is so important for any, any group, um, any nonprofit, not association, trade association, uh, organization, that you have to hear from the people who are living what you're what you're advocating for, because otherwise it's just another. For if it's me, it's just another white, able-bodied woman, you know, talking on behalf of. I think the what really resonates with whomever your 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 audience is is the people who live. The experience every day is the person with developmental disabilities or an intellectual disabilities or with both or, you know, or with, um, you know, just, you know, whatever it might be. I think hearing you have to hear from the people themselves. And I think that's what makes the DD councils so unique is that they 60 percent is made up of people living the experience. And so, um, yeah living the truth because, and that really resonates and whether we're asking Congress to move forward on a piece of legislation or we're working with the administration in the Department of Education on some regulations, if they don't hear how something current is is, right. is affecting the people, then, then they don't know and they're not going to make a change. So we always like to ensure that whatever we're doing, we bring in those, those voices of, of the people. You know, to, to tell the story. You mentioning stories is so important because I, I as you look at stories, when you have the people that ha- that are experiencing what is what is transpiring and the reason why you're there to talk to them, you're reaching both the head and the heart. Mm-hmm. And people work differently mm-hmm. ba- based on that. And I think that it, it gives you kind of the double power there because of having those people that touch touch you or just like I was touched when I was at your yeah I mean a firsthand experience goes a long way than someone you know offhand speaking on behalf of because it as you said it touches you you feel a sense of connection with them when you hear what they're actually going through um you know just you know just like what's happening in in 
you know, in Texas with, you know, just yeah. seeing the videos and the pictures, it, it brings you, the audience to a different level than just, oh, the weather is bad, you know, without hearing and seeing how people are affected right. by subminimum wage or being forced into institutions or group homes or not having, you know, a full, you know, education because of whatever reason, it, it you hear that story and you're like, oh, okay, I see now what that impact is. So how many people uh, with your research, how many people fit the description of what you're talking about with uh, developmental and intellectual uh, disabilities in the US? In the US, oh, hmm, that number has changed. Um, it, let me, uh, it's about... Guesstimate. 13? I might be wrong on that. Um, 13 million? Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> that. That's not, that's not the issue. Um, I mean, there's 61 million people, adults in the U.S. with a, with some form of a disability, but how many develop? Okay. Well, um, so, I mean, I with think develop that would shock most people. I think it would, yeah. To, to know that 61 million out of approximately 325 million. Uh, and you know, I think it's that... 6 million with developmental disabilities. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. So it's about 10%, you know, 10% yeah. of the 60 million with disabilities. It's 6 million with developmental. Okay. Wow. Those are some big numbers though. It is very big numbers. I mean, a lot has to do with, you know, just as with anything, we have more testing and we have more, you know, um, ways to, you know, to see what the spectrum is. And, you know, and the word spectrum is really important because not everyone is the same. You know, a person on the autism spectrum is not going to be the same person as their neighbor on the autism spectrum. So I think when it comes to even disability or developmental disability, the word spectrum is so important because it helps people to see that, again, not everyone is the same just because they may have the same diagnosis. Yeah, And, and you, I think that helps. And you don't want to lump them into all one bucket. Exactly. That's not that's not that's not fair to any one of them in right. any of the buckets. Exactly. So your organization, the NACDD, tackles self-advocacy. Now, mm -hmm. talk a little bit about being a self-advocate. And some may not really understand what that term means. Sure. So self-advocate, and, and it kind of goes back to what I said about storytelling, is, is the person with the lived experience. Yep. A self-advocate is a person who advocates for themselves on behalf of themselves and people and others. So we have a number of people, um, and, and some people don't like the term self-advocate, um, but they prefer advocate. Um, but that, you know, again, that's something that is a spectrum that we're learning and, and everyone is different. But, you know, for for, for this sake, self-advocate is the person with lived experience who is able to speak about, about their experience and, and goes and talks to conferences or goes to meetings with legislators in, in the state, their local, their schools. And it talks about, you know, why certain things are important to them. And that's, and that's what we really try to push at NACDD is is the importance of self-advocacy because that, you know, it really does make a difference to hear from the people themselves and not just, you know, some, a professional. Well, and 
it goes to the point of something that I say an awful lot. If you're not willing to stand up and speak out, who should be? Right. And that's really what a self-advocate is, is the ability to stand up for themselves and to speak out about the things that, that affect them, matter to them, uh, and uh, that they care about. So. Yeah. And I'd say as, as many in the professional world, corporations, nonprofits, associations, schools are really working towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, then you need to include disabilities uh, with that. And not just someone, you know, you know, not just you know, a physical disability, but all disabilities, um, you know, and that, that is a huge part of, of this new push towards diversity, equity, and inclusion is to ensure that you're also including people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So how do you find, how do you find additional advocates? So that's what we use. I mean, that's what the councils are really good at. Um, and they, they have, you know, obviously there's the, the people on their council themselves. Um, but they also, you know, within the states, they have uh, self-advocacy organizations. There are a number, number of amazing uh, state-led at, uh, organizations. There's um, uh, diagnosis-specific organizations. There's the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Uh, they're based in, uh, their national office is based in D.C., um, but they have people throughout the, the, the country. We have Self-Advocates Becoming Empowered, um, also known as SABE. Uh, their main office is based in Arizona, actually, um, but they have uh, a board with uh, reg different regions throughout the, throughout the country also. Um, and, you know, there's uh, UCP, United Cerebral Palsy, and um, uh, there's a group that we're a part of called the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, which is a little bit more broader in terms of what disabilities they focus on. But um, but we you know we look to them and say, hey, we're looking for we're looking to do a panel on this topic at a conference or on a webinar. You know, who can you who can you give us to to help speak about what they're going through? And and you know we we do really. Um, within the past couple of years, we've really made a concerted effort to ensure that any session, panel, or webinar, in, in light of the pandemic, any webinar <laughs> we do has at least one to two people with lived experience on them. Yeah. So it's not just a bunch of talking heads. It's not just a bunch of researchers or, or you know, corporate people or political wonks, but it's the people, you know, again, who with the lived experience. And so we, we really do try to ensure that at least one to two people on each session um, are people with lived experience. So how do you, how do you train those to make them even more effective? Uh, because the stronger they are at their ability to tell the story, Sure. The so right there's a lot of, more there's a, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a number of programs um, way back in the history of DD councils, the Minnesota Developmental Disabilities Council started a program called Partners in Policymaking, which um, a number of states have just kind of taken that curriculum and just implemented. Some have kind of fine-tuned it, tailored it to meet their state or territory's individual needs. And it, it it's a, it's, I think it's an, it's a three month program, you know, where you go through and teach 
advocates and parents and other caregivers how to advocate to policymakers. Um, so that is a uh, really well-known program that a number of the states use. There's also um, a, a youth partners group, which uh, kind of does similar to like model Congress in, wow. in, in schools um, also does for um, people with uh, younger people with uh, developmental disabilities and kind of teaches them in, in at a different you know level before they get to the, the wider partners in policymaking. And then, you know, we work with other organizations um, that do specific training for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. There's a group called Elevatus that does, um, tr uh, pr provides training for people with um, developmental disabilities on how to be sexual educators um, because sexual health is a huge uh, stigma for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but they're humans and they, you know, have relationships just like everyone else. And so that group Elevatus um, helps them to talk about, um, you know, what they're thinking and what they're feeling and how to talk to others about that. So we partner with them. And then of course, you know, um, our own annual conference and working with our partners at annual conferences to kind of bring in these uh, more formal training opportunities uh, for the advocates, so. So what are the greatest challenges uh, with your advocates trying to educate the elected officials? Is there a is there a sticking point or a stumbling block that they get or? Sure, I think for, for some it's technology. Um, I think, you know, because especially, you know, we've seen with the pandemic um, and how everything has moved to virtual, you know, broadband is a huge issue and not everyone has great access to, right. to the internet. So that is a major issue. Um, so they don't have the opportunities as someone in Phoenix or in Washington, D.C. would have as some of the rural areas. Um, so that is a major issue. Also, just there are many people that... Um, have their own technological needs. You know, there are some people that um, may need a soundboard to help them speak. Um, and sometimes that doesn't always come through via the phone or, um, or just with the, the, the uh, policymaker legislator's office doesn't always have the equipment uh, needed to, to make that work or, you know, with webinars, we need captioning and we need ASL interpreters and, you know, it, it's, it, it's not, it's not cheap and, but we need to provide this accommodation and this service to people so that they are included. Um, and not all, uh, you know, all, legislators are moving towards that, that they have to do that, which is, you know, good. We had, you know, the, the new administration now has ASL interpreters at all of their press briefings, which is so important. We saw in the Super Bowl there was during the national anthem, there was an amazing um, ASL interpretation of the national anthem. And this is the stuff that we need to see because people who, maybe don't use their vocal cords, still use their voice. So, um, and I think that again, goes back to some of the stigma of, you know, assuming that people who may do not speak with, with, a vo with their voice box, <laughs> they still speak um, and they still have something to say and we need to hear them. Absolutely, unequivocally, your people need to be heard and you, uh, the folks at NACDD and Robin uh, do a great, great service on behalf of them and on behalf of the 56 councils throughout the states and the U.S. territories. Robin, is there any 
final thoughts that you have or anything else that you'd like to add today? Sure. I mean, we, we're always looking uh, for people we haven't heard from before. You know, we have our pool of advocates that we love to, to, to talk to and have them share, but you know, there, we know there's 6 million people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in the U S we have not heard from all of them and we want to. So if you have any people that would be good to serve on a DD council or would be good to speak about their experience at a conference or on a webinar, we'd love to hear from them. Um, we're always looking to expand our, our uh, pool of people that we talk with and share and have share. So, um, so you can, can definitely yeah, uh, so how, share that. How can people reach out to, to, to be able to do that? Sure. So you can definitely take a look at our website. It's www.nacdd.org. On that website, there is a page that has all of the state DD councils and territory DD councils contact information, but you can also reach us at info at nacdd.org. And we'd love to hear from you. Oh, that's wonderful. And I'll put all that information in the show notes. So that, uh, that people can uh, reach that contact information there. Well, that's a wrap of the interview today. A great conversation we had with Robin Troutman of the National Association of Councils on Developmental Disabilities. Robin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. So now it's time for a quick advocacy engagement tip. Now, today's tip is what we know from past lessons if advocacy engagement and activation is decreased. If you step away, what happens? You know, you cannot get much support if people don't know you exist. You will have little influence if you maintain a low profile. Conversely, with a low profile, you'll get little influence. So on the bright side, all of you have a good story to tell. You are essential elements in your community, or you just would not exist. You are critical to the success of others. So please tell your story, just like Robin used that as the best thing that she thinks of when, uh, when she thinks of advocacy. So does your organization provide training and practice time for your supporters to learn how to tell their story? Yes. Great. <laughs> so we would like to thank our sponsor, Rap Index. Know who your people know. Go to Rap Index, R-A-P, index.com and tell them Roger sent you. In the upcoming episodes, you will be treated to inspiring interviews from leaders in the world of politics, association, and nonprofit causes. If you like today's broadcast, head over to where you find your podcasts, be that Apple, Google, Spotify, or any others. In fact, now you can even ask, hey, Alexa, play the Voices in Advocacy podcast. So a big thank you again to Robin for being on the show today. I greatly appreciate your time and passion for helping others through advocacy. We at Voices in Advocacy work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. That's it for today's episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be effective and influential. Now go out and make it a better world. 
We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.